Well, good evening. My name is Steve Farish, and I'm grateful to the Lord for the opportunity to be here this evening. In thinking about <clears throat> tonight, I've asked the Lord three things very specifically in prayer. Number one, that he would help me to be especially pastoral this evening because our topic is suffering, and suffering is so personal. Um, and I realize as I look around a room this size, it's probably exceptionally personal for some of you even at this moment. My second prayer is that the Lord would enable me through this message this evening to put solid rock, solid rock, under the feet of Christians for times of suffering. And then my third prayer is that if there are those here this evening who do not know the Lord, that is, you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, that what I have to say about God's blessings to his children would make you so jealous that tonight you would say, I want that. I want that. Yes, Jesus, I want all that you are for me through a personal relationship with you. Here's where we're going this evening. We're again asking the question, why does God allow pain and suffering? We're first going to see very briefly three wrong answers to that question. And then we will see at significantly greater length one, one, right answer to that question, and I'll invite you to turn in advance, please, to Romans 8.28, perhaps after John 3.16, the most familiar passage of Scripture to you. But first, by way of introduction, three wrong answers to the question, why does God allow pain and suffering? Now, Pastor Kenny, in his marvelous message this morning, spoke about the answers that other religions give to this question. I want to suggest to you three wrong answers that we commonly hear in the Western culture in which we live. Answer number one that's a wrong answer is that God is not good. There's suffering and there's pain in the world because, in fact, God is not a good God. Some of you know uh, that the humorist, Russell Baker, died this past Monday at the age of 93. Uh, he wrote humor columns in the New York Times, I think, for at least 40 years. And I remember reading Russell Baker's autobiography some years ago. His father died suddenly when Russell Baker was five years old. And just after he was told that his father had died, this five-year-old boy had the following conversation that he remembers with the family housekeeper. For the first time, I thought seriously about God. Between sobs, I told Bessie that if God could do things like this to people, then God was hateful, and I had no more use for him. Bessie told me about the peace of heaven and the joy of being among the angels 
and the happiness of my father who was already there. The argument failed to quiet my rage. God loves us all just like his own children, Bessie said. If God loves me, why did he make my father die? Bessie said that I would understand someday, but she was only partly right. That afternoon, though I couldn't have phrased it this way then, I decided God was a lot less interested in people than anybody in my hometown of Morrisonville was willing to admit. That day, I decided that God was not entirely to be trusted. Some people suggest the answer to the question, why does God allow pain and suffering, is God is not good. But brothers and sisters, we've seen the cross. We've seen that God came himself to rescue his people from sin and death by suffering in our place, suffering God's own just wrath against our sins, satisfying his wrath, that in the process he might make us his people. We know the love of God. When the Bible says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. We know that that is true. A second wrong answer. God is not all powerful. Some of you are old enough as I am to remember all the way back in 1981, a best-selling book by Rabbi Harold Kushner, whose son had died four years earlier of a genetic disorder. The title of the book was When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And Rabbi Kushner concluded that, yes, God is good, but that the reason his son had died was that God is not all-powerful. And thus, God cannot accomplish everything he desires. But I would refer Rabbi Kushner to the Hebrew Scriptures and to Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He is the all-powerful one. A third wrong answer to the question, why does God allow pain and suffering? Some have suggested in recent years it is because God does not know the future completely. John Sanders is a Christian theologian who some years ago was driving and came upon a very serious motorcycle accident. He looked at the motorcycle in the roadbed and said, I know that motorcycle. That's my brother's motorcycle. And the police lifted up the sheet so that he could identify the dead man as his brother. And his brother's death in this horrific motorcycle accident sent John Sanders to thinking, how could God ordain, allow such a terrible calamity? And his conclusion was that, yes, God knows 
a lot about the future, but God doesn't know everything. And so God simply did not foresee my brother's death on that motorcycle. Now the book of Isaiah tells me that the difference between the one true God and the gods of all the other nations is that our God knows the future exhaustively. And to be very candid with you, I would not want to live in a world where God did not know the future exhaustively. So those are three wrong answers. One right answer to the question, why does God allow pain and suffering? One right answer is the answer of Romans 8.28. As always, we have to ask ourselves first, what is the context of the passage? The context of the passage, simply put, is suffering. If you look at verse 17, verse 18, verse 22, verse 35, verse 38 of Romans chapter 8, they all speak of suffering of individuals and even the suffering of creation as it groans under the weight of human sinfulness. And in verses 26 to 39 of Romans 8, And you know that the church for many centuries has called Romans 8 the Great Eight. It is the favorite chapter of the Bible, I suspect, of many of us in this room. Not least of all, because in verses 26 to 39, Paul sets forth nine specific encouragements for suffering Christians. Nine grounds. For why, when the children of God walk through pain and suffering that God has ordained for their lives, they can find strength and peace and, yes, even joy. Romans 8.28 is the second of those encouragements. So what we're reading when we come to verse 28 is encouragement to Christians who are walking through times of pain and suffering. Now, before we read the passage, you probably know that in our various English translations, this passage can be translated quite differently. I'm using the English Standard Version. I rechecked this week. The English Standard Version is faithful to the original. Thankfully, this is a case where while our English translations may sound different, the meaning is always the same. So, with that introduction, look with me, Romans 8.28, and hear the word of the Lord. This encouragement to Christians as we walk through times of suffering. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now we're going to draw out three observations from this passage. Very simple observations. Observation number one. 
Romans 8.28 is not a promise to everybody. Romans 8.28 is not a universal promise. In fact, Paul gives two descriptions. One at the beginning of the verse and one at the end of the verse of the recipients of this promise. Look at the first description. We know that for those who love God. So the promise that all things will work together for good, which means, of course, that it is God who will work them together for good. God will work all things together for good first to those who love God. What group does that phrase describe? Christians. How do I know? Because in John 17, 26, Jesus says that God has put into the hearts of everyone who by God's grace is trusting in Jesus Christ alone for his or her salvation, God has put into our hearts his own love, meaning the love that begins with the love of God the Father for God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and the love of God the Son for God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, and the love of God the Holy Spirit for God the Father and God the Son. Because our God is one God eternally existing in three persons, our God first experiences love within himself. And so when he plants his love in our hearts, it is first love to God. So if you are a Christian, if right now you're holding on to Jesus Christ as your only hope for eternal life, the phrase in verse 28, those who love God, describes you. You may say, Pastor Steve, I don't feel like I love God sometimes. It is true. None of us, even one second in our lives, has ever loved the Lord our God with all our hearts and all our souls and all our minds and all our strength. That will come in heaven. But by God's grace, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ tonight alone for your salvation, you love God. And you're the recipient of the promise in Romans 8.28. Look at the second description. This one's a little bit easier at the end of the verse. The recipients of the promise that God will work all things for good are secondly described as those who are called according to his purpose. And what does that phrase mean? Those who are called according to his purpose. What, is, what group does that phrase describe? Well, thankfully... Paul tells us in the next two verses. Look at verses 29 and 30. For those whom he, God, foreknew, he also be predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. 
So we're called according to a purpose. What is that purpose? That we would be conformed to the image of Jesus. That we would look, spiritually speaking, more and more like Christ in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. But continue in verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. There's called again. The called in verse 30 identifies the same group who are the called in verse 28. But look what Paul says next about them. Those whom he called, he also justified. What does it mean that God has justified certain people? It means that when by God's grace you trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, God responded to your exercise of saving faith by doing two things. Number one, he forgave all your sins. And number two, he credited to you the righteousness of Jesus so that you stand before God clothed no longer in your sin, but in Jesus' righteousness. That's Christians. Only Christians have been justified, declared righteous in God's sight. So, here's the point. The promise of Romans 8:28 is not to everybody. God does not promise to those who are apart from Christ that he will work all things together for their good. He simply does not make that promise. That is a promise for Christians. So what's the promise? Let's look at the two parts of it. Number one, all things. God causes all things to work for the good of Christians. All things. Not to belabor the point, but does anybody know how to define the phrase all things? What does the phrase all things mean? All things. Okay. Everything. Okay. God is serious here. All things means all things. My friend Ray Ortland has written concerning the phrase all things in Romans 8.28 these words. Not some things. Not most things. Not the nice things. But all things, including evil and tragedy. All things must extend to literally all things, or else Romans 8.28 loses its force. If there is even one single experience of life falling outside the range of all things then we can never rest assured that God's love employs the worst of life for his loving purposes. But if all things means literally all things, then we never need to wonder, is this the moment when God is abandoning me? All things even includes the sins that other people commit against you. Remember Joseph? His brothers sold him into slavery. 
He suffered for 13 years in slavery and later than in prison. Ultimately, by a miracle of God's grace, he was raised to second in power in all of Egypt. And it was because he occupied that position that during a time of exceptionally severe famine, he was able literally to save the lives of everyone in in his extended family. After the father of Joseph and his brothers died, his brothers came to him, as we might expect, and they said, Joseph, you know that dad, dad said that after he died, you need to treat us well, despite what we did to you. And Joseph said, brothers, what you meant for evil, he didn't let them off the hook. You meant it for evil. But he said, God meant it for good. In the saving of many lives. Including, by the way, the life of Joseph's brother, Judah. Who I think would have a pretty important descendant a few centuries later named Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The greatest example of God using human sin for good is the crucifixion. Pilate, the Roman governor, the Roman governor Herod, the Jewish religious leaders, Judas Iscariot, conspired to put the sinless Son of God to death on a cross. And yet through their sin, God accomplished the greatest good in the history of all eternity. The redemption of a people for his own glory. So all things in Romans 8.28 really does mean all things. So let's look at the next phrase. God works all things in the lives of Christians for what? Tell me the word. Good. Okay. Let's focus on the word good. God works all things together for good. Now, two preliminary comments. First, a question. Who gets to define what good means in your life and mine? You and me or God? (laughs) God. I think it would be good if God were to enable me to make a salary that was substantially higher than the salary I actually make. That would be good in my sight. So far, at least, God has not seen that that is a good thing. I think it would be good for the Holy Spirit to come upon me in some sort of miraculous wave of power and instantly do away with virtually all of my sin. But so far, it has seemed good to God instead that I would struggle with my sin on an ongoing basis. God gets to define good. Second preliminary observation. It may be that God will not show you his good 
in your suffering and pain in this world. He may not show it in the next world. That I don't know. But it may be that he will not show you the reason for your suffering and pain in this world. How do I know that? Because God never showed Job the reason for his pain and suffering. The reader knows the reason for Job's pain and suffering, but God never revealed to Job what the reader knows in the book of Job. In fact, the whole point of Job is Job, it has to be enough when all is said and done. It has to be enough for you that I am God. Job, it has to be enough simply that I am God. So preliminary observations about the word good. Number one, God gets to define it. Number two, he may or may not explain in particular cases of suffering or reveal in particular cases of suffering in your life and mine his reasons behind it. But now let's ask, what are some of the goods that God brings about through our pain and suffering? Now, Johnny Erickson Tata, a wonderful Christian, most of you know who she is, paralyzed in a diving accident at the age of 19, has lived as a quadriplegic in chronic pain, we think longer than any other person in history has ever lived with quadriplegia. In the index to one of, in the, um, at the end of one of her books, lists 36 ways that God brings good out of our suffering. I'm only going to mention two. Okay? So there's much more than this. And the two I'm going to mention are really two sides of the same coin. So one good that God works out of our suffering and our pain, one of the goods, God works all things, even our pain and suffering for our good. One of the goods he works is that it's through pain and suffering that God rids our life. It's not the only way, but it's one of the primary ways that he rids our lives of sin. Now, why is that so? I really pondered that this week, and I thought, I think the reason is that it is when we begin to suffer that a lot of sin that was maybe sort of hidden in our lives comes to the surface. Isn't that true? Is that true for you? It's true for me. It's when I suffer that things like impatience, and self-pity and self-centeredness and especially a lack of faith tend to be revealed really, really clearly. Now I think of God using suffering to remove sin from our lives like power washing. Do you know what power washing is? I had the audacity one time to decide that I was going to paint the outside of my own house. 
Big mistake. But I did find that before you paint the outside of the house, you go to the rent-all store down the street and you rent a power washer. And the power washer is a wand and the water's under really high pressure and you wash all the dirt off the side of your house before you begin to paint it. Well, think of that wand that power-washing wand as being like pain and suffering in God's hands in our lives. And God using that pain and suffering to bring into our lives the sort of spiritual pressure that tends to wash away some of the dirt, some of the sin, I mentioned earlier Johnny Erickson Tata, and she speaks very clearly to this point, that through her suffering, God has revealed and removed sin. She writes this, When suffering sandblasts us to the core, the true stuff of which we are made is revealed. Suffering lobs a hand grenade into all our self-centeredness, blasting our soul bare. But then we can be better bonded to the Savior. Our afflictions have helped make us holy. And we are never more like Christ, never more filled with his joy, peace, and power than when sin is uprooted from our lives. Does this mean that God delights in my spinal cord injury? Was he rubbing his hands in glee when I took that dive off the raft into shallow water? Of course not. He may work all things together for my good, but that does not mean a spinal cord injury is in itself good. That's an important point. The disease in and of itself is not good. The sin someone commits against you in and of itself is not good. The good is what God is bringing out of those circumstances. God permits all sorts of things he doesn't approve of. How God allowed for my accident to happen is not the point. The point is... My suffering has taught me to be done with sin. Putting behind the peevishness, small-minded, self-focused Johnny to mature into the Johnny he has destined me to be, honed and polished by years of quadriplegia. So one of the goods for which God uses your pain and my pain and suffering is it tends to reveal sin so that the Holy Spirit that can, can then begin to eliminate, blast that sin out of our lives. Second, and I said these are two sides of the same coin, suffering and pain tend by the same token to be used by God for the good of increasing Christian virtue in our lives. Strengthening, in other words, what should be there inside of us, especially our faith. 
Pastor Kenny this morning read um, James 1, 4 to 5. Romans 5, 3 to 4 is almost exactly to the same effect. Paul writes, we rejoice in our sufferings. Rejoice, rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. John Newton, wonderful pastor, who of course is the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, actually wrote a lot of hymns. And one that is lesser known is a hymn titled, I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow, that he published in 1779. Listen to the words of this hymn. It speaks to exactly what I'm saying, that God uses suffering for the good of increasing and strengthening within us what should be there. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. In other words, his hope was like the one I mentioned, that the Holy Spirit would just come on him in a moment of time and subdue his sin. Instead of this, God made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, Blasted my gourds and laid me low. I'm not sure exactly what the phrase blasted my gourds means. But I have a pretty good sense. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried, wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way. The Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thine all in me. I think those last two lines sum it up. God is using your suffering and my suffering more than any other single purpose to wean us from the love of this world so that we would find that in Him alone is everything that we always have most truly desired. Last word as we close. 
two last words. First, to unbelievers. If you're here tonight and you're apart from Jesus Christ, by which I mean you never have received the grace of God to trust in Him alone to save you from sin and to give you eternal life, would you not love your own soul enough to trust in Christ based on His sacrifice for sinners as your Savior and to enter into all the promises that God has for His people, not the least of which is that He will work all things, all things, all things together for your good. But final word to believers. When it comes to Romans 8, 28... Be like Lisa Beamer. You know who Lisa is. Her husband Todd was killed in United Airlines Flight 93 that crashed in Pennsylvania on 9-11. A Christian, a graduate of Wheaton College, Todd was the one who led the assault on the cockpit with the words, let's roll. In the months after 9-11, Lisa, who also, by the way, lost her father when she was 15 years old. Lisa gave an interview to Modern Reformation magazine, and she said this about Romans 8.28, among other things. And I love both the honesty and the trust here. Quote, God's sovereignty has been made clear to me when I am tempted to become angry and ask, what if? And why us? God says, I knew on September the 10th. And I could have stopped it. But I have a plan for a greater good than you can ever imagine. I don't know God's plan. And honestly, right now, I don't like it very much. But I trust that he is true to his promise in Romans 8.28 that he will work all things for our good. My only responsibility is to love God. He'll work out the rest. Beneath her signature... Lisa writes Genesis 50:20 As for you you meant evil against me but God meant it for good We give thanks our heavenly Father that you do not abandon your children that you do not as Tim said earlier Say to us at the beginning of suffering, well, I'll see you at the end of this. Rather, God, not only do you walk through us with every step of our suffering, but Jesus, you endured suffering that was far deeper and far greater than any suffering that we could ever know. And so when we look to heaven, and we cry out to you, God, in the midst of our pain. 
We are not crying to a God who does not know what our pain is like. So we thank you, Jesus, that you are not just our Redeemer, you're not just the Lord of the universe, but that you humbled yourself to the point of death on a cross, both to redeem us and then to be our comfort in times of pain and suffering. We give you thanks, O Lord, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.